The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. And we categorically reject the use of, of such technologies to monitor member communities. And I, I think that this this trend, it presents some real questions for us as a society. You know, do we want to be a society that allows cameras in our homes? Do we want to allow the police to listen in on our calls? You know, what do our constitutional rights mean to us? Because because over time, more and more of our systems will incorporate this surveillance, right? I mean, we've, we've seen it start with, with tax violence, but it's, it's really a, a slippery slope. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 9th, 2022. Many individuals seeking asylum or other forms of immigration relief in the U.S. are subject to a program run by Immigration Customs Enforcement, or ICE, called the Intensive Supervision Appearance Program, which uses various kinds of tracking technologies as a way of keeping tabs on individuals who are not detained in ICE custody. I sat down with Sejal Zota, legal director of Just Futures Law, to talk about this program and the kinds of tracking technologies it employs. We discuss what is publicly known about these technologies, the privacy concerns associated with them, as well as some of the harms experienced by individuals who are subject to the surveillance. Notwithstanding these concerns, we also discussed whether the Intensive Supervision Appearance Program is a reasonable alternative to ICE detention, considering ICE's need to keep track of individuals who are both seeking immigration relief and may be ordered removed from the U.S. if that relief is not granted. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 9th. Sejal Zota on ICE tracking technologies. Sejal, you're the legal director at an organization called Just Futures Law. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what it does? Yes, we are a D.C.-based nonprofit that develops and leads strategic litigation, policy, and advocacy uh, to build the power of partnering grassroots groups and communities um, impacted by repressive immigration and policing policies. Surveillance technologies in the last decade have unveiled themselves before us in ways that are terrifying and unaccountable. You know, billions of data harvested from all of us are being sorted and sold in the criminal, legal, and immigration systems. Um, But corporations and law enforcement have ignored the threats it poses to civil rights, privacy, core democratic values, and the rights of, of BIPOC and immigrant communities. So this in part drives our work, which is at the intersection of immigration, criminal justice, and, and privacy law. And our work is meant to eliminate the, the scope and impact of surveillance by government and private corporations, 
promote stronger legal protections for privacy and an enrich public understanding of the interplay between privacy and the freedoms of speech and association. So for example, you know, we litigate cases defending the First Amendment rights of um, immigrant activists and um, combating the use of, of technology to surveil in police communities. We also engage in transparency work um, as a tool to support community partners in their advocacy. So in the course of your work, you've become familiar with a program that the Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, administers, and it's called an alternative to detention program. More specifically, the name of the program is an Intensive Supervision Appearance Program, or ISAP. What is ISAP and what is its purpose? So immigration laws require ICE to detain certain classes of immigrants, um, but ICE and its discretion can release immigrants who don't fall into those classes. And so typically ICE would release an individual from custody on an order of recognizance, um, on a bond, as in the criminal justice system, even though this is civil detention or parole on humanitarian grounds. You know, but, but, the, but the law does allow ICE to prescribe conditions of release And so in 2004, ICE commenced this Intensive Supervision Appearance Program, ISAP, um, as a so-called alternative to detention. And so for individuals who ICE releases on their own recognizance, right, ICE, ICE may impose ISAP as a condition of release. And the ISAP program, it consists of various components, including home visits, you know, unannounced home visits, office visits, court tracking, and several forms of electronic monitoring, including GPS ankle shackles, voice print verification, and facial recognition through an application known as SmartLink. The the claimed goal of the program is to ensure that immigrants comply with release conditions, attend court hearings. And I'll note that since its inception, you know, ISAP has been operated by BI, which is a which is a subsidiary of the GEO Group, um, which is one of the largest private prison contractors and an entity heavily invested in, in mass incarceration across the country, profiting every year from surveillance and incarceration through through contracts like this one. You know, and one thing that I want to say about this program, you know, some people claim that ISAP is a is a so-called alternative to detention. But I want to start by debunking that claim. You know, over the last 18 years, ICE has increased both the number of immigrants detained as well as the number of immigrants in the ISAP program, right? So DHS has currently increased both budgets, you know, both populations. And so ISAP is not really an alternative, but it's really an extension of of detention, an extension of our of our brick and mortar prisons. And you know, for example, you know, from 2006 to 2021, ICE's budget for ISAP increased from 28 million to 440 million. You know, while its budget for detention increased from 1 billion to 2.8 billion. And so, the point that I want to highlight here is that over time more individuals are are subject to ICE's monitoring than would be without the program, right? So for example, asylum seekers who would have previously been released from detention um, and not responsible for 
reporting to the agency are often incorporated into the program, expanding its reach. And I'll, and I'll just note that ICE itself has confirmed in a federal GAO report, you know, that ICE, ISAP is not a substitute for, for detention. It's a way of, of supervising people who are released. So I want to talk a little bit about the various kinds of tracking technologies that are used in the ISAP. But before we do that, I want to clarify who exactly is subject to these programs. These are individuals who have come to the United States seeking various kinds of immigration relief, like asylum, as I understand it. Are there other kinds of immigration relief that that uh, immigrants are seeking who are also put in this program? Yes. Um, I can point you to statistics from a 2019 GAO report, you know, which sort of broke down the population by um, gender, by families, and by, you know, where they were in, in um, fighting their immigration case, right? And so a few years ago, at least, you know, 61% of, of these folks were female, you know, 56% were members of family units, and 89% were in pending removal proceedings, you know, meaning that they were, that their case was making its way through the immigration system, you know, while they're fighting for asylum, or perhaps, various forms of immigration relief, like cancellation of removal. And so they they hadn't been ordered deported. And, you know, a very small percentage were in the, in the process of, of appealing their orders. So when an individual in the U.S. is applying for some form of immigration status or relief, who makes the determination about whether to enroll them into the ISAP? and the kind of electronic monitoring they'll be subject to? So that determination, you know, my information is that determination is made by individual ICE officers. In 2013, you know, ICE has said that it began to use a risk assessment classification tool to essentially calculate the risk when releasing someone. But ICE has also claimed that that algorithm is only meant to provide a recommendation to officers who would then make a final decision. I can't really speak to, you know, whether they're using these types of tools now as they determine who should be released, but um, it is by and large left to the to the discretion of ICE officers who are in the enforced ERO, which is the, the unit of ICE um, that basically enforces deportations. And insofar as it is left to the discretion of ICE officers, then I presume there is no formal mechanism for appeal to a court or other body. No, this is a discretionary determination by an ICE officer that cannot be appealed. I will also say that it's not clear that there is a consistent, transparent custody review process. You know, so if someone wanted to make a case for ending this monitoring because they've been on the program for so long, because they have a long track record of compliance, you know, we're not aware of a consistent, uniform 
process to do so, right? There's there's not a statute, much less a guidance document that, that sets forth the multi-factor test that uh, an adjudicator could evaluate to determine whether someone um, should no longer be subject to incarceration. And you would think with a program this large, you know, that they would have a transparent custody process. So before diving into the particular technologies that are used in the ISAP program, I I just want to clarify that, as I understand it, basically someone is given a choice. If they don't want to enter the ISAP and be monitored electronically, then the choice they are presented with is immigration detention. Is that correct? Yes. My understanding is that, you know, they are told that the agency will release them, but that being monitored through the ISAP program is a condition of their release, right? So essentially they are told, we're going to release you, but you have to do X, Y, and Z. And if they refuse to do X, Y, and Z, then the, the, the choice or the consequence is detention. That's right. So let's then talk about uh, the various technologies that are known to be used in the ISAP program. In the earlier part of our discussion, I think you referenced three GPS monitoring, voice print verification, and facial recognition through an application known as SmartLink. Let's take each one and start with GPS monitoring. What technology is used for GPS monitoring and how is it used? Yes. So for GPS monitoring, ICE and BI, it's contractor BI, are using ankle shackles. The ankle shackle has a transmitter. It's installed during the orientation process and it allows ICE to continuously track an individual's location by storing their coordinates, right, their geographical coordinates at most every three minutes, and then uploading those GPS coordinates at least every four hours to a monitoring system. And so um, the system features an on-demand locate function, which allows ICE to obtain uh, the person's immediate location in real time. The function can be accessed uh, by an officer through an internet browser and a a mobile application, And in addition, the the monitor provides an on-demand function to provide continuous reporting with automatic location updates in real time, you know, if if that's what an officer wanted. Is there some stated purpose, for example, of needing to know where a particular individual is in real time at all times? I mean, I, I can't really speak to that. Yeah, I can't speak to the agency's purpose there. I mean, we have a number of concerns with, you know, all of these uh, surveillance technologies and the physical and emotional harms they exact on the individual subject to them, you know, civil rights and privacy concerns. We have uh, real concerns about the alarming growth of the program over the last year. And, you know, what I, what I can tell you is that ICE has previously used this function, you know, to track someone's data, their location, and they've, they've retroactively retrieved this information 
to conduct uh, workplace raids. In fact, they they um, use this data to conduct one of the largest workplace raids in, in U.S. history. So voice print verification, what is known about that technology and how ICE uses it? Yeah, so what we know is that at the time of the check-in, an individual receives a notification call from voice ID. And within a few minutes of the notification, the individual must call voice ID from an authorized number. The technology then matches the voice print of the caller to the voice print, you know, that's stored in the voice ID from the time of enrollment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. 
The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. And the third technology that you mentioned was facial recognition technology, specifically through an application known as SmartLink. How does that work? And what, if any, information do we have about the kind of data that SmartLink may collect? Yeah, individuals are required to provide their own phones. Um, for the application for fixed check-ins, random check-ins, and to communicate with ICE, um, to upload photos of documents, to request services, confirm appointments, and provide updates on, on court proceedings, right? So they're using this application to do all of their communications with the agency. You know, during the pandemic, some individuals have also been required to video conference with their officers for, for check-ins. 
So what we know is that at the time of the check-in, the app will also capture the coordinates and address of the participant and send them for verification. Now, ICE claims that the app does not actively monitor the participant's location through their cell phone, you know, as in the context of the GPS ankle monitor. You know, they, they claim that SmartLink obtains location information, you know, only during the check-in. But I'll note that while ICE claims that it's not actively monitoring location in real time, the technology has the capability to do so. Um, officers and ISAP contractors, right, they use an application called Total Access. And in Total Access, right, officers can monitor active GPS coordinates of their clients on a shared map. Um, the website notes that it provides a predictive analysis feature, which makes decisions about future risk based on the equipment an individual is using and their movement patterns. Um, and so, again, we can't confirm whether ICE uses this predictive analysis feature as part of the program, but it is concerning that this is an option. And SmartLink's privacy policy indicates um, that the application can share virtually any information collected through the app, um, even beyond the scope of the monitoring plan um, with the supervising officer. And you're not aware of information one way or the other about how that data that is collected may or may not be shared. Right. I mean, we have a number of questions, and, and that's why we filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit last month, um, because it's very unclear to us what information ICE and BI are collecting on immigrants, how that information is being used or could be used. And, you know, that lack of clarity, it raises alarms about people's privacy um, about future uses of this data and just, you know, the sort of reach of this surveillance dragnet, you know, and, and I'm, I'm happy to go through, you know, the, the number of, of un, unanswered questions that we have. Sure. You know, insofar as we've just run through these particular technologies, uh, yeah, share with us some of the unanswered questions you have about, um, how they're being used and the kind of data they are that they collect and and how that data may or may not be being shared. Yeah, I mean I think the first the first question is just what data are they collecting? You know, people enrolled in the program have ex expressed fears that the app could be recording their conversations with loved ones. Others in the program have expressed concern that the program is is tracking their location constantly especially because the ankle monitor tracking, you know, has been used by agents in the past to establish patterns of behavior, uh, establish where people work, you know, and essentially are they obtaining geolocation data, right? Even when participants are not checking in. We also have questions as to whether the agency or BI, whether they're sharing this data uh, or whether they have plans to sell this data. BI's policies are not clear on this point. You know, they're certainly, they're a private company that is profiting off of surveillance, right? That I mean, that's how a lot of private companies increasingly operate. They sell people's data. And so, so we, yeah, we are concerned about BI's interests here. And, you know, I, I think lastly, we have questions about whether this data is being used for enforcement operations, right? To conduct raids, to separate families. As I noted earlier, 
we know the data from the GPS ankle monitor was used to conduct a raid of Koch Foods in Mississippi, right, where more than uh, 600 individuals were arrested. And they, you know, they, they went back and retroactively looked at an individual's movements to determine where, where she worked. And so, um, so in that vein, I think we also want to know how long they retain this data and can they retroactively piece it back together. So do these technologies generate any kind of alert reports or other kinds of reports if an enrolled individual has not complied with the terms of his or her so-called you know, release into society or responded to check-in requirements through these technologies? Yeah, I mean... Th- this is another area of concern um, for people in the program. You know, the, the Guardian has re- reported that SmartLink, the SmartLink app often malfunctions, you know, leading to people uh, not being able to check in. Uh, reviews on the app also express frustration that it is difficult to use. The facial recognition feature, you know, often does not work correctly, making it even more challenging for, for those who are responsible for compliance. And so, you know, when you have these connectivity issues, it's an additional cause for stress and worry for people in the program. Um, and so if you can't check in, right, it might be that an alert report would be created, raising concerns about how little it might take for, for an individual to be found in violation of, of monitoring guidelines and detained. Alert reports are the first level of reports that ICE receives. And so, for example, in the voice verification context, an alert report is generated if an individual does not return a voice verification call within five minutes, or if the voice does not match. You know, for GPS monitoring, an an alert report is generated if the device enters a restricted area or leaves an approved area. You know, that's the sort of first level of reports, and then there are emergency reports which are triggered, you know, by, by other sorts of um, circumstances, evidence of an unauthorized absence, um, evidence of a police contact, evidence of unauthorized travel, things like that. So now that we've talked a bit about the contours of the technology at issue in the ISAP program, I want to take a step back for a moment You've talked or alluded a a bit about this before, but you, your organization and other advocacy organizations that you partner with have a real concern about the ISAT program generally. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, the first thing that I will mention is, um, you know, the program's constant and invasive surveillance, it exacts a physical and emotional harm on the immigrants subjected to these technologies. A July 2021 report from from Freedom for Immigrants, you know, it found that nine in 10 people with ankle monitors suffered health issues and that one in five experienced electric shocks from the devices. Like physical injury, physical pain is something that we have heard again and again um, you know, whether it's calluses, irritation, contact burns, you know, and I would say that it's really outrageous that individuals are are forced to endure this, this physical injury as a compliance measure. You know, in addition to 
the physical harm, this technology emotionally impacts people and and takes a, a toll on their mental health. You know, knowing that your every move is being monitored can be all encompassing, right? It, it makes it difficult to obtain and maintain employment, to sustain relationships with family members and friends. Um, it causes social isolation. I just heard from someone the other day that that this individual's ankle monitor went off when they were working. You know, their employer didn't know that they had an ankle monitor, and and you know they they were in serious trouble, right? So it it can be really hard for people to find or keep a job. I have I have heard from others who were subject to this technology that you know when they go out into the street with their ankle monitors people say racist things and call them criminals. It's hard for the children of of these individuals to see their parents wearing these ankle shackles. This surveillance, it further criminalizes people, you know, and that's coupled, coupled with the psychological weight of knowing, right. That ICE is tracking your movements, you know, every personal interaction. And, you know, it's, it is similar with, with the smart link application there, there's an individual, community member who told us that for, you know, one day a month, he has to stay in his house to check in with ICE on the SmartLink app. And, you know, they they can call him at 12, they can call him at 5, they can call him at 8 p.m. But he has to stay home because he doesn't know when that call will come and and he'll be asked to take a picture of, of himself. And so on that day, right, it makes it impossible for him to work. You know, it also makes him feel feel like a criminal. So, these technologies have real, real impact, a real physical and emotional impact on people. You know, in addition to this, the, the sort of privacy and um, civil liberties concerns that I've already flagged, I would note the exponential and unchecked growth of the program. You know, we issued a report on the ISAP surveillance program about a year ago in May, 2021, you know, and at that point there were a little more than 96,000 people in the program about a year later, you know, that, that number is now more than 216,000, right? Like that is more than a hundred, a hundred percent increase. And it will soon be doubled again. If this administration's goals are realized, you know, President Biden's new budget would add another $500 million for, for ISIS incarceration systems. You know, the other trend I'll note is that, you know, a year ago, a third of the people in the ISAP program were on SmartLink. You know, a year later, um, 75% of the people being monitored are, are on SmartLink. Right. So there's this increasing reliance on the SmartLink facial recognition technology. I think what's so alarming about this, you know, about this is the agency's normalizing of this surveillance. You know, previously, people would have just been released with some requirements of in-person check-ins with ICE. You know, that is being replaced by a system where more and more immigrants are being tracked and surveilled by ICE. And we categorically reject the use of, of such technologies to monitor immigrant communities. And I, I think that this 
this trend, it presents some real questions for us as a society. You know, do we want to be a society that allows cameras in our homes? Do we want to allow the police to listen in on our calls? You know, what do our constitutional rights mean to us? Because because over time, more and more of our systems will incorporate this surveillance, right? I mean, we we've seen it start with with tax filings, but it's it's really a, a slippery slope. And you know, and I'll just note that back in February, you know, twenty five members of Congress wrote to the DHS secretary expressing concern over exactly this, over, you know, a drastic increase in this program, you know, highlighting the physical and mental harm to their constituents. And members of Congress called for ICE to reduce the number of people in ISAP and to publicly disclose its data and civil liberties policy for the SmartLink application, you know, which is, which is what we are asking ICE to do as well. So understanding the concerns that you've raised, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate. What do you say to those who say, look, isn't some form of electronic monitoring better than being physically detained? And and doesn't ICE have some responsibility to keep track of folks who may or may not show up to court, who may or may not show up when they've been ordered removed from the country? Is, is there not some incentive for people to show up when unfortunately they haven't been granted the immigration relief they've requested? And isn't this a better or more humane way of doing it than just detaining people? So first of all, I think the claim, well, isn't it better than detention? I think that's a false choice. You know, as I mentioned earlier, both budgets have grown. The budgets for detention and the budgets for alternatives to detention. You know, ICE still detains a very large number of people while it concurrently subjects release populations to increased monitoring and surveillance, right? And so, you know, these were previously, you know, people who were just released on their own recognizance or on bond. You know, they weren't being detained previously. I think to say it's one or the other is a false choice. I think secondly, we as a society have to evaluate the costs of surveillance-based programs and assess whether this is the best way to achieve the stated goals, right? I mean, do we as a society want to live in a surveillance state? You know, and as I was mentioning earlier, right, I mean, we would never allow cops to just come into our homes because we value freedom and privacy. And so I would ask, you know, why should we subject these communities to the same with their attendant physical and emotional harms when there are other ways of achieving these outcomes, right? So for example, people in removal proceedings, they want resolution in their cases. You know, they don't want the uncertainty that comes with having a pending claim that goes on for years and years because it means they don't have a lawful status, which means that in many states, you know, they can't get a driver's license and they can't get you know, work authorization, right? It, I mean, it makes it very difficult on a practical level to, to function in our world. You know, and I'll note that, that practices that provide more support and stability to immigrants as they go through this process, you know, do increase compliance, right? Immigration law is a labyrinth. You know, many a federal judge has, has, has noted so, right? So it's not surprising that 
immigrants face many barriers as they go through the system, right? They often don't understand what's happening. You know, there are government errors in providing notice. There are language and geographical obstacles. You know, there, there are mental health um, issues based on the trauma they've they've experienced. There's a lack of legal representation, you know, and they don't have steady work. Um, and so, you know, when we look when we look at data, right, there's data that shows that when immigrants have lawyers, you know, someone to help them navigate an unfamiliar unfamiliar system, their their compliance rates go up, right? There is a, a study featured in the UPenn Law Journal. There's also, you know, ICE data that shows community-based support systems have resulted in high rates of compliance. You know, I, I am not an expert in alternative models, but we do know that DHS is, is currently not funding these models, right? They're not putting half a billion dollars into these things that I've mentioned. But what I can speak to is that, you know, surveillance does not help people feel more supported and more able to access the services that will you know, help, help them achieve more stability and attend court. You know, surveillance, it simply creates additional barriers and, and harms for, for individuals. So, I, you know, I, I think there are, there are choices here. There are definitely choices, hard choices here. We're going to have to leave it there for now. Thank you, Sajil, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.